I, uh, I came across uh, an interesting um, project that kind of blew up online. It was a couple of years ago, but something called the Three Glasses Project. I don't know how many of you found this, uh, but it was kind of interesting. It was a Brazilian photographer who, by the way, I think if you're a photographer, you have lots of good-looking friends. But he had this idea about he wanted to measure the effects of alcohol uh, because what he had come across had been so negative, and he didn't feel like that um, alcohol and the use of it had to be in such a negative light. And so he wanted to see the effects of alcohol after one, two, and three glasses being a photographer, he wanted to capture moments, snapshotted moments, and so what he did was he started lining up his friends with certain criteria around them, and he would take pictures, and I'll kind of narrate you through some of the examples, um, but what happened was the thing blew up, and over, in a week it had over a hot, um, like a million views with over 1,800 comments, and people started talking about it and started taking their own pictures, so it grew beyond just his friends, and so this this was called the Three Glasses Project. Um, and what he said was, I wanted to make a tribute to wine. He explained that he had previously only seen the negative side of alcohol, but after he started to drink wine with a friend about a month before starting project, his perception changed. He wanted to show that if you drink in moderation, surrounded by your friends and family in a happy environment, it could be a good thing. Now, for some of you who might have grown up in an illegalistic home or maybe a, an abusive home where alcohol was abused, you don't have a positive image of this, but this is what he set out to do. Now, some of this, I think, is cultural, uh, but this is what he came across. So you can kind of see the images as we go. Uh, you see one slide. Uh, this is when they first arrived. So all the subjects were uh, initially Al Alberti's friends. Uh, his name is Marcos uh, Alberti. Some of them drink wine every day. Some hardly drink. Alberti gave them a Cabernet Sauvignon because he simply thought that people would enjoy that type of wine the most. Now he took the photos in his studio in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and the project took six nights total to complete. He took all the photos in the middle of the week at night after the subjects had finished working for the day. He was trying to create something that had some kind of empirical or kind of consistent read so he could kind of measure this. Very unscientific, and yet he was trying to be somewhat scientific about it, at least in his own conclusions. Alberti always shot the first photo immediately after the subject arrived at his studio. He wanted to best capture the effects of life's daily pressures, like facing traffic while commuting from work. After the first portrait was taken, he gave the first glass of wine. Alberti did not control the timing between each portrait. He simply waited for his friends to finish their drinks. I imagine as you're watching these, some of your friends are coming to mind. Some of your maybe happy hour mates are coming to mind. He was very surprised uh, by the results of his photos. He didn't expect such a big difference in the mood between the first and second portraits. He explained that in Brazil, drinking wine with someone is not a, the same as casually grabbing a beer. It's considered much more intimate. He said by the end of each session, a lot of personal stories were shared. Alberti has a favorite saying about wine, and it says something like this. The first glass of wine is all about the food. The second glass of wine is all about the love. And the third glass of wine is all about the mayhem. 
I kind of like that. I thought it was rather clever. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, one of the things we, we start to see is there are things that people do, quote, under the influence that make them to do things or cause them to do things that they might not ever otherwise do. Have you had this experience of your friends? Certainly you don't have your own stories, but you know people who have done maybe regrettable or embarrassing things. In fact, we kind of have language to describe this, do we not? We, we have language that says, well, I, I'm just going to get a little liquid courage going here to go talk to her, or maybe I just want to take the edge off, or we have to go to happy hour, as if there's only one hour that we can actually be happy, surrounded by certain kind of, um, you know, <clears throat> beverages or I want to drown my sorrows, or I need a stiff drink. We have emotional language to describe something in an effort to receive some kind of comfort, some kind of consolation, some kind of mood enhancement. And the reason I want to talk about all of this. But, oh, let me just say this. People are also drawn, not just for, because something bad wanted to happen, they want comfort, but people are also drawn to maybe being a little louder, laughing a little bit more, maybe even getting a little bit more affectionate. Uh, but we know that somehow it causes us to change our perspective and willing to do things that we might not otherwise try. And here is, is, is sort of my conclusion, is that I think the way we relate to alcohol gives us a way to relate to the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is because there's passages in Scripture that find a kind of clarification when people are acting unusual, people are doing things maybe extraordinary, that it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit. And so um, now, I would just simply say this. Both of my parents came from homes where drinking um, and alcohol had been a problem. And so the home that I grew up in was alcohol-free. In fact, our relationships didn't revolve around beer and wine. Coffee was our social drink of choice. And when we were really living large, there would be like Cokes and Pepsis. You know, I mean, uh, but for the most part, we're like, we're the water family when we go out to eat. Uh, uh, in fact, I, I, I remember being in college and my dad and I traveling. We had spent three weeks in West Africa, but on our way back, we spent some time in Geneva, Switzerland. And so it was January. Uh, and so we're like, well, let's, let's, let's in, experience the culture. So we, we go out to fondue in Geneva because that's what you do in Switzerland is, is have fondue. And we did our typical, you know, Oh, we'll, we'll just have water. And, and this very polite waitress kind of looks at us with this very condescending. She's like, you don't, you, you don't drink water with fondue. We're like, you don't? Because we, we do. And we didn't. But we needed to be talked into saying that it was okay to actually imbibe. Uh, but I just remember having to experience. Now, I've come to the understanding that I think alcohol can actually make a meal uh, and, and enhance a meal, uh, whether it be a, a nice Merlot with a steak or a Chardonnay or, or, or some kind of uh, you know, Chardonnay with a fish or maybe just a craft beer with pizza. My point is this, we have this idea about the effects of alcohol 
maybe because of personal experience or what we've observed, that alters people's perspective, that gets them to act differently, that maybe gets them to try. They seek it maybe for comfort, they seek it maybe for pleasure, but there's something that gets them to experience or view others differently and to try things they wouldn't normally do. And to that, I want to start to unpack some of the mysteries surrounding this person and the role of the Holy Spirit. And so when we jump into scripture and we start to see things, we see how the confusion settles in. Now, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost arrives and there is this kind of outbreak where people are acting radically different. In fact, there is this um, kind of proclamation that's going on in this very multicultural setting, except that everyone's hearing it in their native tongue. And so they're blown away and they almost start to laugh at what's going on. And so Peter, in the immediate post-Jesus era, before Paul sort of rises up as the New Testament leader, Peter, the guy who had just denied Christ, the Peter, the one who had been really zealous for Christ and still failed him prophetically, Peter stands up to bring some kind of voice of reason and listen to what he says among the crowds. Then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you. Listen carefully what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only nine in the morning. Give them time. Wait till happy hour. It's still nine. Mimosas wouldn't do this. Bloody Marys wouldn't do this. This is their introduction to this mood-altering, life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. And it was actually the transformational agent. See, we put a lot of faith in self-help books. We put a lot of faith into willpower. But can I just be honest? The thing that actually transforms a life, doesn't matter how religious we observe our sort of spiritual disciplines or practice our rhythms, short of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, do we ever experience transformation? Now, here's another passage, and this is written to a young group of believers in the city of Ephesus. Paul now stands up, and and Ephesus is an interesting place because you had a very multicultural, very affluent city. This was built on a seacoast, and there was a, a major thoroughfare for sea trade, and so you had all cultures and lots of trade and lots of revenue coming in from all places of the world, but there was a goddess by the name of Artemis there. She was a fertility goddess, and so much of the industry became built on the, on the sculpting of the goddess Artemis. And so, in fact, during Paul's time, the harbor had become so, it, they didn't really have dredging like we had today, and it became impassable by like large ships. So the sea trade had diminished. So Paul comes, and he's writing to these young believers, and he says things like this. He says, for you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And, and as I've said before, that word is so indicative of our new identity in Christ. And what he's talking about is when you said yes to Christ, you got to experience something at salvation, but now there's this other work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul was writing to them in a city that's, I won't say littered because it's 
It's ordained with so many sculptures, so many um, statues of this goddess. And so, so much of the trade was built on silversmiths and blacksmiths and, and sculptors and artists, and they had made huge profit off of this goddess. That had become the big industry. Paul, who's writing to a very spiritual culture, then introduces the concept, be very careful how you live. There's lots of spirituality all around you, but don't miss Christ and Christ um, risen. And he says, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Here he goes. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to corruption. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul starts to draw a parallel of what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I would say there's two kinds of dwelling. There's an indwelling and then there's an infilling. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what happens when we say yes and invite Christ to take up residence in our heart. When we submit ourselves and say, I want to pledge my allegiance. I want to align my life with your will, your way, your plans, and your purposes. But Paul is speaking to a group of people who are already Christians, who are already technically have the Holy Spirit. And yet there is this kind of deeper work that comes when we begin to welcome in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, what I would call the infilling. And then it starts to become something transformational in our speech in our gratitude, in our compassion, in our hospitality, in our generosity, it becomes the change agent. And so there is something that I want to just latch onto as people who have already expressed some kind of spirituality, for most of us have already identified with a life in Christ, I'm saying keep going. There is this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And even if you feel like you've got all seven of our rhythms mastered, if you've got quiet times down for 30 minutes every day in the word and in prayer, great. But let us not forsake the actual infilling and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so compassion uh, is, is one of those things of that is allowing the work of the Holy Spirit to do a work in us and through us. But oftentimes, if we're honest, compassion doesn't come natural, does it not? Uh, at least for me, um, and, unless we're being personally affected um, or, 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 or maybe moved by the Spirit. So I would say it this way. It's hard for me to be concerned about homelessness naturally. It's hard for me to be concerned um, uh, about certain things unless it touches me personally. Now, maybe it might be um, mental illness, violence, abuse, unemployment, hunger, war, cancer, until it touches my life. And then all of a sudden, 
I think God uses our circumstances to start to break our hearts for all the right reasons in all the right places. And we can become and experience God's compassion. Not just on the receiving end, but on the giving end. And this is how God is shaping us. This is what I think is part of the infilling and the unfolding work of the Holy Spirit. It's aligning our lives with God's holiness. And compassion becomes the fruit of the infilling work of the Holy Spirit. But like I said, left up to my own devices, with me at the center of my life, compassion is not my knee jerk because I'm too busy. I'm, I'm, I'm too concerned with my wants and what I perceive as my needs to let myself get too affected or too interrupted, except that my life needs interrupting. And I would say we need the Holy Spirit in order to do what doesn't come naturally so that I don't remain the center of my life or my kids don't re remain the center of my life or my marriage doesn't remain the center of my life or my career and my job doesn't remain the center of my life. Those things are really important to me. Those are priorities, but they cannot be the center and I need an interruption. So if we back up back to the gospels and we start in with what we've been talking about for the last five weeks, Jesus has this reoccurring self-deflecting phrase that he uses over and over again, not my own. It's not my authority. It's not my words. And, and he says, it's not my will. And there is something that captures the compassionate heart of God when Jesus says, it's not my will, but thine be done. And he says these words. And, and again, I would just simply ask the question, what reminds you or what recalibrates for you to not be or, or to allow God to be the center of your life? Jesus says in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So what we have is Jesus growing in wisdom, Jesus growing in popularity. Jesus is doing all sorts of miracle and building a nice rep for himself. In some cases, it's threatening to people. In other cases, it's like He's healing them. He's feeding them. He's delivering them. And yet he's also growing in surrender. It's really interesting to grow in both popularity, in wisdom, and in surrender. Not my life. And he's saying my life is simply not my own. In other words, Jesus was working in concert with his Father in heaven as the Spirit was guiding him. And so there's this interesting chronology as we look through this larger chapter. And from Luke's vantage point, and again, I want to talk to you about compassion tonight in light of not my will, because this doesn't come naturally. What happens right before Jesus does this is there's this feeding of the 5,000. And what's happened right before that is that he finds out the news, according to Luke's account of this, that his cousin John the Baptist has just been beheaded. And what does he do? He does what all of us would want to do. He retreats to a solitary place because when you found that someone close to you has been murdered, has been martyred, the last thing you want to do is be a blessing to people, to be winsome and charming for the masses. If someone close to you is affected, the last thing you want to do is be on, right? If it's been a long day, I'm in retreat mode. I'm like screening people. I'm like pulling back because I've got to decompress. 
Jesus retreats to a solitary place with the disciples. But guess what? The crowds found him. And what does he do? He has compassion on them, like sheep without a shepherd. And he takes this moment to feed the multitudes. Wait, 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 wait. But he's grieving. And he goes, there'll be time to grieve. Sometimes the best grieving is to keep giving. So Jesus, in this very compassionate moment, wanting to self-reflect, pulling away, but people keep finding him. So from this place, Jesus goes and they go across the sea. Now, Jesus takes the water route by walking. They take the boat. They meet him on the side and the crowds follow him there. So he's not catching a break. Remember, he's carrying the weight of his cousin being beheaded and he's not getting him, but he keeps showing compassion. Is this human effort? Or is this the work of the Holy Spirit? What we can do is find a trail of breadcrumbs that lead us closer to what the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit can do when we're out of sorts. Because it's very common for me in my weak moments to want to eat my way to comfort. Right? To take the edge off. Right? Or, or, or to somehow seek pleasure, seek comfort in other ways. And yet the Holy Spirit has been promised to us. And, yet, and, and what we learn is that there is this ongoing and deeper work. But it's not something that will be forced upon us. It's something that grows through gradual and, and continual surrender. Jesus keeps saying, I trust my Father in heaven to bring the comfort that I need. And he says he looked at the masses and he had compassion on them. And he kept giving in, in, in very depleted moments. And so what we learn is, uh, like Jesus, my will needs to be interrupted with God's will so that my life can be changed. And to do the will of God, as Jesus says, is to align our lives with God's plan to restore a broken world simply by meeting needs. But to do my will is maybe to not care or to not slow down, to not help or to not respond. See, I think we all dream about our faith operating supernaturally. I mean, that's kind of what the draw is, right? Because left up to my own devices, I know how to get an education. I know how to put a roof over my head and food on my table. But I desire to live extraordinary. I desire to live supernaturally. And so the only way that happens isn't that God just interrupts me someday, but it comes through continual and perpetual surrender. And so we hear stories in scripture, we read about the miracles, and yet our lives feel painfully mundane got to pay the bills, got to sign the kids up for soccer, uh, I, I got to go grocery shopping, I got to plan and hopefully maybe have a fun weekend, I want to see a good movie, I want to apply maybe for a better job, um, but truthfully it's nothing that we can really manufacture. Faith is supposed to be transformational, but I think it happens when we're willing to put ourselves out there, to risk vulnerability with God to risk maybe sacrifice, to going without, to giving without reward, to being interrupted, and maybe even be inconvenienced so that over time, my will can become his will. And that becomes comforting. That becomes the new success. That becomes gratifying. 
Let me give you one more passage out of John, John chapter 14. I, I meant to tell you, uh, uh, we have on the app a chance to take some notes. Uh, if you want to open the app, I have some blanks that you can fill in and follow along, and you can save them on your device. Uh, and so there's some blanks as we go. Uh, but you can kind of get in the habit of maybe looking at those. But it says, um, Jesus is speaking these words, and you can tell that his disciples are having some detachment issues. They're, if your kids, like, you know, around, what is it, like a year and a half to two, they go through this detachment thing because they, they get used to you sneaking away and they freak out because they don't see mom or dad. Um, I think that the disciples were going through some abandonment issues, and, 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 and so Jesus starts to speak these words about in his physical absence, you are going to be well cared for. You are going to be well provided for. And listen to what he says about this enduring and deepening work of the Holy Spirit. If you love me, keep my commands. But that's not just try your hardest, friends. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. It's a super interesting word that we'll look at in a second. To help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. So there is this flesh and blood that's going to be manifested and it's, 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 it's Christianity on, on multiplication. It's not just simply like the addition where Christ is physically, it's Christ in us all over the place. And then he says in verse 25, all this I have spoken while I was still with you, but the advocate, here's that word again, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give uh, to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The word advocate comes from the Greek word paraclete. And I've shared this before, but it's such a significant word when we're called to be people of compassion and we need the filling of the Holy Spirit. The word paraclete breaks up into two Greek words. The word para is where we would get words like parallel or the paramedic. It's, it's, it's the word that, that, that says to come alongside something maybe like a parachute or a paradigm, some new way of looking at life and the world and circumstances. We are giving this, this ability to be able to see things differently, not on our own, but through a new lens. And the word cleat or the word kleo is, is, comes out of the Greek, meaning um, one who comes alongside and speaks for, like, like the word, like a cleat. Uh, where you would tie up a boat to so it wouldn't just drift away. And so we have this advocate in the Holy Spirit that is going to walk alongside us, whether we can see it or not, whether we can feel it or not, who will help guide us into truth. So when we get that check in our spirit, that kind of intuition, that kind of, of sense that um, I'm supposed to stop for no good reason. I'm supposed to give um, with, without being asked. I'm supposed to do... I believe that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit inviting us to deeper levels 
of participation in God's salvation and God's restoration. And so um, one of the things that I think Lent invites us into is not just this time of fasting where we go without, but we've set aside Fridays as the time for intentional focus, maybe to go without certain things, but move toward other things. It's, it's a time for extended prayer and focus because you can't simply come to God and say, God, I just want to add you to my life as is. Could you just make this version a little better? The only way to experience new life is through death. And we see that in the seasons. The way to get new roses is to prune the old ones. And it comes out more beautiful on the other end. I think God wants to do a continual pruning work. I think compassion is one of those things that he invites us further into, not because it feels like a goosebump, not because it, it, it makes us feel good about ourselves, but it bears the fruit of a living God and a living faith. And we get to participate with a deepening work of the Holy Spirit. And it often feels inconvenient. And it often feels uncomfortable. But like we say around Mission Hills, we make awkward look effortless. So here's what I want to do. I want to just close by simply praying a prayer and, and inviting the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so if you would just bow your heads and kind of close your eyes with me. With the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, compassion, I think, is a tangible way for us to come alongside and, and meet the needs of others. And so I would just invite you to pray uh, kind of more simply, um, God, help us to know the areas that we have created shortcuts for comfort, for gratification, for pleasure, because we have not trusted you enough. Speak to us about the areas where we haven't trusted you with our finances, with our reputation. I just pray uh, that, that the Holy Spirit could maybe bring maybe a word or a name or a face to mind that you might offer up by way of confession. And then I would simply invite you to invite the infilling work of the Holy Spirit. If you consider yourself a Christian here tonight, you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. But I believe there's a, a further work, a transformational work that comes through the growing ministry and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And I would just invite you to welcome in that spirit. Father in heaven, we invite your Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. For you to have your rule and have your reign, have your will and have your way. So we pray like Jesus, prayed, not my will, but yours be done. In small and in big ways, your will be done. But will you mold us and make us, shape us further into your image and use us as part of your salvation? Holy Spirit, would you just come? Would you just linger? 
just worship you in these moments. And I'm just encourage you to kind of sing out, but maybe keep praying and inviting God, maybe talking with God. I sense that the Holy Spirit might be active in your thoughts. Just name them. <laughs>